So we're going to be looking at uh, part of Genesis chapter 6 and also Genesis chapter 9 as we consider the covenant that God made with Noah as a continuation of the promise that we saw in Genesis 3.15 last week. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, particularly as we come to this story that we've been learning about since we were three years old in Sunday school, and we think we're thankful that we have been learning about it that long. Help us to see it with new eyes. Help us to open our hearts and open our minds to understand this story, not just as a amazing story from the Old Testament, but as a picture of your Son Jesus Christ and His plan of redemption for us. So as we come to this text, help us to do just that. Help us to see our sins and be convicted of them. Help us to see our Savior and worship Him. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. So, one of the most important aspects of this story is the, the rainbow. And as I've thought about rainbows, this is something that has captivated me since I was young. I've always liked to ask questions about things that I've seen, which is probably why I went more of a scientific route in my studies. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I've been learning about this story of Noah for such a long time, and rainbows are always associated with it, so I've always been, been curious about rainbows. And even though they have a lot of mystery to them, and particularly back in those days when they saw them, they had no idea what they were. Today they've been largely solved by science. But I always would try to, even even though I knew what was going on, I would always try to get to the end of the rainbow. Have you ever tried to do that? Like when I was a kid, and a younger kid, I'd get on my bicycle. But then older, I would even try to get on my like four-wheeler and try to run to the end of it. We just never got there. And I remember one time there was even a time that I had a friend standing way off, and it looked like he was standing in the rainbow. I was like, you're standing in it. And he's like, no, I'm not. It's way over there. Just mysterious, to be honest. But I always thought maybe there's a pot of gold or something at the end of it, or being able to stand in all those colors would be fine. Um, but it wasn't until I got older that all the mystery began to be removed of it, and it was just essentially a trick of the light. And everyone sees their own version of the rainbow, as it were. It's not some sort of physical structure out there that you can actually go and like become a part of. You can only see it. It's a weird thing. So, as I think about rainbows, make a lot of things are like that. That when you when you learn the secret about them, when you figure them out, they kind of lose their mystique. They lose the mystery, and they become less interesting. And I wonder sometimes, as I read this story. If the people of the before the flood were that way, you know, obviously by the flood, I mean the flood that we find in Scripture, Genesis six through nine or so. And I wonder if the people before the flood began to think that their own sin was somehow insignificant, that the story of the first parents, Adam and Eve, 
and the Garden of Eden, which by this time must have been a place of mystery and legend. Maybe it wasn't even a real thing. Because it had been hundreds of years since the Garden. Maybe the people were even thinking, well, maybe God has forgotten the curses by now. He's just letting his people live as if they wanted to. I mean, it would definitely seem that way by looking at the culture that was around them all. And so I wonder if the reader even, and the reader of this book was probably an escapee from Egypt, the first readers of that, gave thought about Egypt and the culture there. And we can even see this in our own culture. And so, as we get into this text, I want us to consider that. Not only consider what's going on then, but also consider what is going on in our own culture today. So let's look at the text. Genesis 6, we're going to read 9 through 22, and then we're going to turn to Genesis 9 and read the 17 verses there. So let's stand together as we read God's Word. Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make the room, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you should make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50, and its height, 300. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood upon the waters of the earth to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort of, of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, the animals according to their kinds, and of the creeping things in the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall, according to its kind, you shall keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Turn to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, the flood has happened. And Noah walks out the ark, and this is what the Lord says to him. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the field, or every beast of the earth, and upon the bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I ha- and and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For for and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. 
From every beast I will require it from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by his, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, and teem on the earth, and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, and the birds and the livestock and every beast on the earth that is with you, as many that came out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that is between me and you and every living thing that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living thing of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Amen. This is God's word. So, before we begin talking about the promises that were made to Noah, I want to get a bit of a background as to what's going on to cause God to want to say, I'm going to destroy everything. So look back at chapter 5 with me real quick. Chapter 5 is one of those chapters, if it wasn't so short, we'd probably want to just skip it, because it's full of, this man lived this long, he had these children, and then he died. Chapter 4, we have the saga of Cain and Abel, and that demonstrates this struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that we talked about last week. And then we have some of the generations of Cain, and we see that their corruption and the things that they have done. And then at chapter 5, we read that this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, Genesis is divided into sections according to this saying. You want to read through Genesis and see how these divisions work out. But anytime you read this statement, this is the book of the generations of so-and-so, this is Moses' chapter division. All right, We read one of those earlier in Genesis 6, where it says Noah. And so here he opens up the generations of Adam. This is a good way to outline the book. Again, it doesn't necessarily run according to our chapters and verses, but that's fine. But one of the things that we see is a common refrain as we read through Adam's generations. Aside from the fact that these people lived really long times, which that's one of the very first things that we notice. Wow, Adam lived 930 years. That's a long time. All right. It is a long time. But what do you suppose Noah or not Noah, excuse me, Moses in writing this is trying to get us to say? Usually an author will say something over and over again in order to bring that point out. It's three words. And he died. And 
he died. Enosh lived 90 years, had these sons. All of his days were 905 years. And he died. And he died. And he died. What is Moses trying to remind us of? What does God want to remind us of through his word? He is making sure that we know that the punishment for sin is death. The punishment for sin is death. Paul knew this. What did he say? The wages of sin are death. Mankind earned death, and that is exactly what they're getting over and over again. We shouldn't focus on the length of the days these men lived. For whatever reason, the Lord saw fit to have Adam live almost a thousand years. We should focus on the fact that Adam died because Adam chose death. These years mean nothing when we think about our Creator who lived forever before He even thought about creating man. But then we read down and we see this glimmer of hope that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Maybe this stands as, it definitely stands apart from the rest of the chapter, but why does it? Because maybe there's, maybe God does remember the promise that he gave to his people. And then look what Lamech says when he has Noah. Why does he name him Noah? Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. This one shall bring us relief. Did he remember his promise? Did God remember his promise? Perhaps this one shall bring us relief. Maybe this one is the one that God said he will crush his head. They believed in the promise of God. They wanted to see the promises of God fulfilled. However, turn to chapter 6. And what does it say there in verse 5? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's really no other way to write that in order to get that point across. Only evil continually. Every thought, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. We studied a similar concept, didn't we, in Ephesians. That man is what in their trespasses? Dead. In Romans 3, what does Paul say? No one is good. No one seeks after God. No, not one. Theologians call this concept total depravity. Man is completely bad. Not a little bit good. Completely bad. Completely unable and unwilling to save himself outside of God's direct intervention. And what does God say? I will blot out man whom I have created. When the Creator says He's going to blot something out, it's not going to be some little small thing. When the Creator of the earth that, that spoke and said light and something that wasn't was, I'm going to blot man out. And then what else does He say? I am sorry that I have made them. Now, just I want to mention this a little bit here. This is a problem for some people. Uh, it's a problem for all of us, if we're honest. That I'm sorry that I've made them. When I say that I'm sorry I did something, I, I'm admitting a mistake, right? 
Well, God isn't admitting a mistake here, as some have suggested. But I think he's helping us to understand the gravity of man's sin. The gravity of man's sin is such that the Creator Himself would say, I'm sorry that I have made Him. We shouldn't equate this with some sort of regret that we might have. Because what does the Scripture, what else does the Scriptures tell us? Moses even tells us this, that God is not like man that He should change. He doesn't change His mind. So this isn't God saying, well, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Because God sees all ends and all things. And so there wasn't, God wasn't at all surprised by the garden, and He wasn't at all surprised by the actions of man that lead up to the flood either. This wasn't somehow shocking to God. Oh no, what is man doing? However will I cope? No, this isn't what God is saying. God knows full well that it was going to come to this end, but He's yet sorry that He created man. This is a way of accommodating the language to our human sensibilities. We can't at all understand the ways and the mind of God, but yet he's given us some words to do that. We should understand again, like I said, God, it's possible for God to know all ends and yet still feel sorry that he created all things. Again, beyond our understanding. So let's not go to this with our human sensibilities and attempt to make God like us, because it won't happen. But, amidst all of this crazy kind of evil that knew no bounds, what do we read there in verse 8? At the end of the chapter that is noted as the generations of Adam. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that brings us to the next point. That even though man is as evil as possible, God's grace is as good as possible. But Noah found favor. This is the first time in Scripture that we read the word grace. But he found favor. And I think some people are quick to look at this and they read verse 9. Well, why did Noah find favor? Let's keep reading. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Well, that's the beginning of a new chapter. These are the generations of Noah. I don't think that God is trying to say, say to us that because he was a good guy, that's why Noah found favor, that God looked all over the land and said, well, there's a good guy, he will, he will be mine. No, I would say that it's the opposite. The reason that, or the reason that Noah was a righteous man is because God found favor with him. The reason that he was spared the evil and the wickedness like all of his neighbors is because God found favor with him. Not, it's not God did not somehow give him something different because he was a great guy. Because again, every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of man was only evil continually, including Noah. We shouldn't, again, we deserve to drown outside the ark just like everybody else. Noah deserved to have that ark closed on him instead. But yet God looks on Noah and gives him favor. God looks on us and gives us favor. I'm reminded of the prayer of the publican in Luke chapter 18 where this tax collector and the Pharisee are praying before the Lord. And the Pharisee looks down and he, and he basically says of the, 
of the of the tax collector, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this man. I'm better than this man. And the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The difference between those two is the tax collector has found the grace of God. And the Pharisee has been left to the intentions of his heart. And so in this case, Noah has found the favor of the Lord. And another thing I want us to bring out here, that when when God came down and said, I will establish a covenant with you, Noah, was it just with Noah? Was Noah to build a one-man ark and jump on it with all the elephants and giraffes? No. And you, with all of your children, and your wife, and their wives. Why? Remember when Adam was given the commandments? Were they just given to Adam? When Adam was given the blessings, were they just given to Adam? No. They were given to him and his offspring. When Eve was given the promise that you, that your seed will crush the head of the serpent, who was that for? Just Eve? No. For their offspring after them. Cain and Abel knew that. Abel wanted to see that promise come about, but Cain cut him off. The people of Adam that called upon the name of the Lord there at the end of chapter 4, they wanted to see that promise come about. Because it had been passed down from generation to generation. God does not deal with individuals. Yes, he does in the sense that each individual needs to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But what is God's intention for his covenant? To save Noah's family. So as God comes to Noah, he comes to him not only to save him, but to save his entire family. They're all asked to get on the ark. Why? Who found favor with the Lord? Noah. But because Noah found favor, his entire family gets to get on the ark. And again, every man and woman must stand before God on their own and make an account for their sin. Whether it's their own righteousness or, thankfully, for us who believe the righteousness of Christ. But there is a sense in which God deals with families. And this is how he always does things. And we'll continue to see that throughout Scripture. The covenant that God gave to Adam and Eve concerning the promised Messiah wasn't just for them, but it was for their seed. This promise of salvation wasn't just of this giant boat. Again, wasn't just for Noah, but it was for all of his people as well. Does that necessarily mean that all of his people will follow after the Lord? That all of his people will do like Abel and sacrifice to the Lord? That all of his people will do like Seth and call upon the name of the Lord? No. Just read Genesis chapter 9. We read about the son Ham falling away, even though he was shown all the benefits of salvation. So in Christ, we are members of the covenant and our children are made members of that same promise. Does that mean that God will ultimately save them? No. They have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But does that mean that they will hear and see the benefits 
of what it means to be a child of God. That they should hear and see those things. Absolutely. Did Ham and Japheth and Shem see what it meant to found favor in the eyes of the Lord? Yes, they walked off the ark alive. Did they all call upon the name of the Lord? No. So the covenant is for families. Again, we'll see this throughout Scripture. And then we have the story of the flood itself. I don't want to go a lot into that, but I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but there are some interesting things there. I love 7.16 and 8.1. All the preparation for the ark, and you get you know the rains from the deep and the rains from the heavens and all this stuff that we could spend a lot of time uh, discussing and wondering about. Frankly, there's we just don't know, but we do know this in verse in chapter seven verse sixteen that they went into the ark and the Lord shut them in. He sealed them in. And in chapter eight verse one. What does he do after he rains down water so much that it's 20 feet above the tallest mountain? What does he do? But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. God is looking out for his people. Even in the midst of the craziness, God was looking out for Noah and he saved him. And then in chapter 9, we have this covenant. It's spelled out. And it's almost exactly like the one that we found in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, or 26 and 28, excuse me, where God says, be fruitful and multiply. It's even the same in that God blessed Noah and his sons. He gave them a blessing, and this is his blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you're reading this, and you're escaping from Egypt with the rest of of the... uh, the Hebrew people. This should be an automatic reference to chapter 1. Well, I remember that. Why? Because here we are, back at the beginning of creation, with one family. Be fruitful and multiply. The fear and dread of you shall be on all the beasts. Why? Because you shall subdue the earth and fill it. And special attention is given to life. Why? Because life is sacred. It's created in the image of God. And therefore, what does God say? Anyone who takes the life of man, his life shall be forfeit. And then he says, I will establish my covenant with you. This is different from the rest of the word, the rest of the verbs associated with the word covenant. Usually it's cut a covenant, literally cut a covenant or make a covenant is how we see it in English. But here it's establish because this means that I'm confirming something with you. That has already been made. I am putting in perpetuity something with you that has already been made with the people that came before you. I will establish, I will confirm this covenant that I have made with you. And I'm going to preserve the earth. I'm going to keep those in it. And here's the sign. It's a bow. Now what is a bow? A bow is a weapon. Why do we call it a rainbow? Well, it comes when it rains and it's shaped like a bow. That's why we call it a rainbow. And where's the bow pointed? Pointed back up at the sky. Why? Because God is saying, 
if I don't keep my bargain, if I don't keep up my end of this to not destroy you, then I'll cease to exist. God, according to his nature, must keep his commandment. He must keep his end of the covenant. But God has also made a promise to us, has he not? That we, his people, would one day be delivered. And are we doing anything to keep up with that? No. We're not. We're unable to do it. Even after Noah had seen all that he had saw, there, been taken off the ark, had been given this new covenant, spoke directly to God in the rainbow and worshipped God, right there after that he becomes a man of the soil and plants a vineyard and gets drunk and creates this whole falling out that makes all these new nations that hate one another. Because Noah's not a good guy. He needs a savior just like you and I do. They're not going to get it right. They don't get it right after they get off the ark. What makes us think that they're going to get it right for us? They don't. That is why we need someone who can do our end of the bargain. We need a Redeemer, and that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. And, and you can take this story and you can put ourselves in it. We want to focus on the wickedness of the world without focusing on our own sin. And you could easily put us here in this chapter 6 of Genesis that the intentions of the heart were only evil continually. But what? Those are my intentions too. But Mike has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Is it because he's a good guy? No, he's a good guy sometimes because God has shown him his favor. That's why. And it's in Jesus that I have any sort of righteousness. Because Jesus keeps the demands of the covenant. It's because of Jesus that this covenant of grace was made. Just like the rainbow is a sign to Noah and his offspring, Jesus is a fulfillment of this promise that was for us and for Adam and Eve and for Noah and Abraham and the list goes on. Why have we found favor? And again, this is a question you should ask yourself regularly. Why have we found favor? Because God is good. Because He is merciful. And we are counted as righteous and blameless because of the work of Christ. We couldn't at all keep up with our end of the covenant. But Jesus came down and He died in our place so that the covenant could be fulfilled. Justice demanded that the terms of the covenant be upheld, for God is not himself. And so God himself came down to fulfill the demands of the covenant. And it's in his death that we have forgiveness, and it's in his, res in his resurrection that we have the promise of eternal life. And we become partakers of the covenant of grace because of the redemption that he has promised us. And this is not just for us. But this extends to our families as well. Just like Noah. My children become members of this covenant just like Noah's children after him. 
Now, does this mean necessarily that my children will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? No. But does it mean that they'll get to see God's grace and goodness and mercy unlike any other unbeliever out there before they call upon the name of the Lord? Absolutely, that's what it means. Just like Noah's kids were delivered on the ark, yet Ham did not choose to demonstrate that he understood God's grace, the promises are for us and are are for our children. And that's why we teach them. So that that they might know. So that they might know that the ark and the promises of God therein weren't just a story about a big boat. And so that later in life they can say, well, that's just not even real. But they're a story about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, it's in Jesus that the terms and the blessings of this covenant are here and now. Be fruitful and multiply. What does it do? It receives us full treatment in Christ. Therefore, we are to go and do what? Make disciples of all nations and baptize them. In Christ, we have seen the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises of the covenant. And what should we do then? We should live as if they are true. And it might be easy for us to look at something like a rainbow, like I've done reluctantly, and say, you know, there really isn't a pot of gold there. However, we should never look at a rainbow or any of the other signs of God's promises and think, well, maybe God doesn't keep his promise. Because what do we read about God's promises in Jesus? They are yes and amen. And so let us live as if what he says is true. That all things are being made new again. Just like they were after the flood. They are now. And we, his people, get to serve in the great work of all time. Seeing the kingdom of Jesus Christ being spread upon the earth. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to not let this story of redemption go idly by. Because without you, we are the people outside the ark thinking that everything's going to be okay. When in reality, we are all headed for our doom. But in you, we have life and have it abundantly. Today, and we have the promise of life for all eternity. So Lord, help us live as if that is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing in response to God's word.